0: Lauren, Mike. Lauren, can I interest you in trading in your iPad for an Android tablet?
1: You'd have to make a pretty hard sell, I think, <laughs> for that one. Why? Uh,
0: I don't know. All the apps. Uh. <laughs> uh, the low prices.
1: Um. The no user comments? experience. Yeah. Um. No, I, I really like my iPad. I mean, I guess I already use an Android tablet because I have a Peloton, which is a giant Android tablet. (laughs) But I admit I don't I don't cart that into bed with me at night when I want to watch some YouTube videos.
0: All right. Well, you're totally missing out. Maybe we can convince you over the next 30 minutes of content.
1: (laughs) We can give it a try.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Kalori. I'm a senior editor at Wired.
1: And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired.
0: We are also joined this week by Wired Reviews editor Julian Chokatu. Julian, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Julian.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So we have you on this week because this is the week that we just had Samsung Galaxy Unpacked. It's Samsung's annual smartphone hype fest where the company unveils its newest phones and its newest tablets. And on Wednesday of this week, they did just that. There are three new Galaxy smartphones in the world. They're all part of the new S22 line, and there are also three new quite pricey tablets that are all part of the Galaxy Tab line. We'll talk about those tablets in the second half of the show, but in the first half of the show, let's dig into the meat of this meal, which is the phones. Now, Julian, you reported on these new devices this week, and you actually got the chance to spend a little bit of time touching them. So tell us, please, the big question, are any of the Samsung phones small enough to hold in one hand?
2: Uh, yeah, the might be a bit skewed. I have very large hands, so <laughs> my experience is not the same as other people's. Uh, the S twenty two is uh, six point one inches is the screen size, and so that is actually smaller than last year's just by like zero point one inch. So you know, can you really tell how much smaller it is? Probably not, but it is pretty usable in one hand. I have it here. I just unboxed all of them. Uh, And it is definitely the easiest one to hold. But of course, then there's the 6.6-inch Galaxy S22 Plus, and then the absolute massive 6.8-inch Galaxy S22 Ultra.
1: And what are the standout features of these new phones, aside from being small or large? (laughs) Or
0: large, depending on which one you get.
2: Yeah, I mean if you look at the S21 lineup from last year, they are not really that different. Like everything is kind of like the usual, you know, it's faster, it has a slightly different camera that lets in more light, uh, all that kind of good stuff. Uh the the big feature here I guess with the Galaxy S22 Ultra is I have a hard time not calling it the Galaxy Note Ultra, because (laughs) it literally is a Note phone. Uh, It has an S Pen inside it, and so that's the first time that Samsung has embedded an S Pen stylus inside the S series phones, which are its more popular line, which might pretty much mean the end of the Galaxy Note line. The last one we saw was back in 2020. And so now when you have this big screen phone with the same sort of S Pen, the same functionality, you're kind of just like, why do we need a Note phone at this point, right? So uh, right. so anyone who really you know loves their Note phones, you don't have to worry about it anymore. You can just uh, buy the Galaxy S22 Ultra and that's
0: pretty much your Note. So I have a theory, which is that when the Samsung Galaxy Note 7 started exploding, that was the one that exploded, right? It was the 7? Yeah. So I have a theory that when that happened, they set up like a five-year plan to discontinue the note name just to separate themselves from the uh, exploding phone name and just moving it into the into the uh, the regular Galaxy S line. So I don't know if that's actually true, but that's just my theory.
1: That's an interesting theory. I would also say that. Samsung has been working on foldable devices, like phones with flexible polymer displays for several years now. And so now it seems like those have taken the role of like the Samsung phone that is really expensive, has advanced technology in it, and they don't expect to sell that many units. So they sort of shoehorn that off to like a separate event throughout the year. Whereas all of the features that have become a little bit more mainstream are now packed into the flagship phone that we hear about every February.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of now seems that, you know, they usually have two Galaxy Unpacked events in a year. Well, sometimes three, but hopefully not. Uh, but when there's <laughs> two, uh, you know, you have one in the beginning of the year for the S series usually. And then the the latter one in the later half latter half of the year was the Note one. But last year, that sort of changed to just being for the Galaxy Z Flip 3 and the Galaxy Z Fold 3 foldable phones. And I think that's what's, just basically going to happen, you know, with with why have a whole other event for this large screen phone when you're basically have that large screen phone experience earlier in the year. That stuff's just going to be for the for the foldables going forward, I think.
0: Well, I think if there's any company that needs to streamline its product lineup, it's Samsung. So I'm actually happy that the note is going away and that we only have to worry about an an S Ultra now if we want to talk about the phone and the stylus. Uh, But uh, let's switch topics and talk about these cameras that are in this phone. Tell us what is so unique and wonderful about the cameras.
2: So the first thing that comes to mind is obviously it's not particularly new here. It was uh, existed. It was the same feature that was available on the S21 Ultra, but it's the 10 times optical zoom camera. And you actually still can't find another phone in the United States. Uh, You can in China, uh, but not in the US (laughs) that has a 10 times optical zoom camera. And, you know, that's if you don't know what that means it's basically the camera can zoom in 10 times Uh, currently you know your iphone it'll show one times or you can go up to three times and most phones stick around in that three to four times if you if you spend about a thousand dollars for a phone these days Um, but samsung their phone can go up to 10 times and that just means you can take super close-ups of these objects or subjects really far away and it's really nice actually to have that kind of uh, range. It just gives you a lot more options if you're trying to take more interesting photos or just, you know, you like taking photos and a lot of people do on their smartphones. So that's just sort of a nice thing that's continuing on. Um, the other big camera feature is kind of weird because it's not the default option, which if you know anything about phones, if it's not the default option, most people are probably not going to use it. So. Yeah. It's just it, if it's not default. That's why you know a lot of companies have these smart software features where they you know if instead of going to the night mode to take night photos, they kind of turn it on by default if they detect it's a low light scene. That's pretty smart. But with Samsung here, you so basically adaptive pixel uh, on current. Samsung Galaxy S21 phones. Uh, for example, they have a 108-megapixel on the camera on the S21 Ultra. So you can, by default, take a photo and it'll be a 12-megapixel photo because it is using a process called pixel binning, where the pixels are merging and they can absorb more light, so you're getting a lesser image resolution, but a brighter photo, so that's pretty good for most situations. Um, but you have an option to toggle on a 108-megapixel mode where you take a full 108 megapixel photo. So that means you're getting this massive file size, this super high-res photo, that's often very sharp and really good for daytime but that usually suffers at night. So the problem here is that they wanted to give people an option of being able to capture a high resolution photo that's still pretty bright, and that's what adaptive pixel is. So now when you toggle on that high resolution mode in the S22 Ultra's 108 megapixel mode or on the S22 and S22 Plus's 50 megapixel mode, you'll be able to take a photo in that high resolution, uh, whether it's 50 or 108, and it'll take a pixel binned image at the same time and it'll merge the two, so you can hopefully end up with a sharper, brighter photo, but I have no idea how that's really gonna look, you know, I haven't really tested it yet, so it could be a marginal difference, it could be a pretty big deal, Um, but uh, because it's not the default, I have, Sort of some doubts that it's this huge game changing feature because if it was that, if that was the case, you know, that's something that they would have tried to just push hard, even if it is larger file sizes, right? So,
0: yeah. Oh, so you're saying like if they had actually if they actually felt like it was ready for everybody to use all the time, they would have just made it the default.
2: Yeah. I mean, yes. Like there's a sort of understanding that like maybe
0: people don't want the default file size to be so high, but how big are we talking? Is it like 30, 40 megabytes?
2: It's about 20 um, from when I checked during the hands-on period. Um, Basically when you take a normal photo in the normal default mode, it's about three megabytes. Um, And with this uh, mode, it's, 20 megabytes so that can add up it's not necessarily a huge difference but it is something that can definitely add up but you know with cloud storage being very popular nowadays it, it, it all just seems like something Samsung should have just been like this thing's awesome here this is the default thing and, and there's another way if you want to take lesser photos that are you know smaller size here's here's how you do it too um, but maybe that's a good thing uh, we'll see uh, in the full review when I test these things out
0: Awesome. Okay, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about the tablets. Samsung has always taken tablets pretty seriously, probably more seriously than any other Android device maker. So it was not really a big surprise to see three new tablets it unpacked alongside those three new phones. But these aren't cheap tablets. The lowliest one of the bunch costs $800. This could signal the beginning of a big year for Android tablets. However, Google recently called tablets the future of computing and said that it was going to focus more resources on making the Android tablet software experience more pleasant. So what do you think, Julian? Is there a bright future for Android tablets?
2: It's kind of strange Um, you know there was a period where android tablets were becoming a thing you know seven eight years ago some long time ago (laughs) and then you know google had a whole operating system at some point in time based uh, on optimizing that tablet experience it was android honeycomb it was forever ago Um, and then nothing really happened for a long time and then a lot of manufacturers just started not making android tablets And then now, all of a sudden, as of very recently, um, there's a whole new job listing for a senior engineer uh, for tablet optimization at Google. And in that description, they sort of say, uh, this is a quote from that job description. We believe that the future of computing is shifting towards more powerful and capable tablets. So... You wouldn't think that considering the entire past five, six, seven years of Google's tablet strategy. Um, they have some of the most poorly optimized tablet apps on Android compared to iPad OS. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those things where like, cool, I will wait and see how this goes (laughs) Um, and it's it's also one of those things i don't want to just like be excited for it because i feel like there's so many times where i've just been like oh something's happening with tablets and then a year or two later, Google's like, this isn't working. We're going to drop this whole thing, just like Stadia. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, so so I'm, I'm just trying to be cautiously optimistic. Um, but it does seem like there are a lot of changes happening because within the past year, um, there's been a ton of new Android tablets um, from various manufacturers. So Lenovo has been churning out a lot of Android tablets. Nokia just put out a... Uh, Android tablet that I just uh, tested and I actually really like. It's $250, and that was kind of surprising. Um, And, you know, I think Samsung now covering this high-end tablet space, like, yeah, you can ask the question, why would you buy one of these things instead of like an iPad, which can probably do a whole lot more. Um, but I think Samsung has been that company that's always been present with Android tablets. And they've sort of been refining this DeX experience that they have, which sort of transitions Android into this desktop mode. Yeah. And it's actually been kind of usable, you know, for the past few years. As I've been testing every year, it gets a little more refined and you can plug it to a monitor and have this desktop experience. And um, I can I can see people sort of wanting to stick to their Android ecosystem instead of sort of diving into a new operating system, like with Apple, especially if they already have everything on Android. So uh, I kind of get it. Um, it's it's still is hard sometimes to recommend such an expensive Android tablet, but I think that's just because uh, most of us see those high prices and think, why not just get an iPad? But,
0: yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. That's what I see. <laughs> that's yeah. what I see. I mean, the base model iPad Pro is $800, which is the same price as the Galaxy Tab 8 that was just announced this week, which is the cheapest tablet that samsung is putting out this year
2: i will say that they do usually have a ton of other uh tablets like i just tested the galaxy tab s7 fe they also have to fix their naming <laughs> structure because it's really bad <laughs> wait
1: say that once more yeah say it's that
0: three th- times
2: <laughs> galaxy tab s7 fe i think now i'm forgetting
0: but That's it was the fan it's, edition yeah the fan edition
2: and and yeah. it's uh i think it's around 500 bucks and then they also have the tab a7 god um i think that's the name uh, but that's like 200 300 something like that so there's that a couple of
0: different options a designation is usually the the cheapest yeah, samsung exactly. Devices, yeah exactly so
2: they, they have options we usually targeted
1: at emerging markets yeah. yeah
2: yeah the problem though is that when you take the base $330 ipad which has this really good processor in there, compare it with the sort of relevant priced Android tablets. The performance difference is insane. Like it's a completely smooth, optimized tablet experience on on iPad. On Android, it's very jittery and not very fun to use really. Um, so it's something that, you know, There's so many options if you are in the market for a tablet that you can get something that's super polished on the iPad side. And you can only kind of get that really polished experience if you spend so much more on the Android side. But then at that point, you're like, why not just stick with Apple? So Mm.
1: I have three comments on this. The first one is, no, (laughs) Okay, $800 for an Android tablet when you can get, as Julian pointed out, a really great iPad, base model iPad, for somewhere between $300 and $400, I think even less if you're a student and have amazing processing power and just a really great tablet. There's absolutely no need to spend $800 on an Android tablet. The second thing that I would say is no, also. (laughs) Did I already say that? No. Google has had so many opportunities to try to make tablets work. They are still trying to make tablets work. They're still trying to make fetch work. I give them a lot of credit for this. Google obviously has a lot of amazing talent in software, and software is such a key component of how a tablet works, right, how well it works and what you can do on it, that maybe there is a chance someday in the future that Google will get it right, and all of a sudden this will be like the tablet that everybody wants instead of the iPad. I just have a hard time envisioning it right now and the third thing I would say or rather ask you both is have either of you ever been able to do your jobs your full jobs entirely on a tablet and and what has that been like
0: no uh actually yes the chrome os tablet I think it was called like the pixel tab or so, the one that google put out it was like a mm-hmm. high-end tablet that just ran chrome os Um, I was able to do my whole job on that just because our content management system is um, optimized for Chrome and there are all the tools that we use are available as the G Suite. So it's like if you have like a Chrome experience, like a Chromebook or a Chrome tablet, it plugs right in. So weirdly, I can't do my full job on an iPad because Mm -hmm. the content management system we use at Wired does not – really work in Safari. I mean, you can kind of make it work, but there's problems. And the last thing that you want when you're trying to publish a story to the internet for like hundreds of thousands of people to read is problems. Um, and likewise, with an Android tablet, it's just like it—the the, the web page just breaks. It barely loads. So weirdly, like the one tablet that doesn't really exist anymore is the w- only tablet that I've ever been able to do my full job on.
1: Right, the one that is a hybrid mobile OS with <laughs> a web OS, which yeah. is something... Once again, credit to Google, yeah. they were experimenting with. And I think theres it's called Fuchsia OS was its code name oh, okay. right? Or was, the, was that something else? But they were, yes, they were trying to make Chrome OS a thing. And in that instance, it makes sense. I agree with you. I've never been able to do my full job on either an Android tablet or an iPad, as much as I like the iPad, because of our content management system and just other things that we need. Like Google Docs doesn't mm-hmm. really run all that well on tablets, so it has gotten better. Or if someone is really deep into Excel spreadsheets, those are... Challenging to use on a tablet, right? Yeah. Or you need like a full fledged keyboard and mouse and all the other accessories that go with it. Um, the other thing I would say too is that in general, like and this isn't specific to iPad OS or Android OS on tablets, but I'm, I'm aware from reporting on this issue that a lot of times app developers don't feel the need to optimize their apps for a tablet experience, particularly if they are developers of quote unquote, pro software, stuff that people typically might pay, you know, 10 to $30 a month for $300 a year for, because they've optimized their software for the desktop, they can sell it through the web for desktop users, and therefore maximize their profits. Whereas if they develop the same application for what is still essentially a mobile OS on tablets, then they have to go through the app stores. And as a result, they end up giving Apple or Google or whoever's running the store anywhere between you know 15 to 30 percent of, of their revenues from those apps. So I have just found over the years that some apps still don't work all that great on tablets, and I can't say I totally blame the developers for that for not maximizing those experiences because or optimizing those experiences because why would they? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're a maker of professional grade software. I mean, you can't still Instagram still isn't I Forget about pro software. <laughs> Instagram is still not optimized for iPad, which is kind of crazy. So yeah, sorry, I said, I'm going to go back to my third statement being no, I am not spending $800 <laughs> on an Android tablet. I know I haven't used the thing yet. That is my final word.
2: So this is probably a good uh point to mention android 12 l which is currently in beta and it's coming out at the end of this quarter um it's basically a, i see that
1: they're trying to woo me
2: <laughs> it's l <laughs> it's basically a slightly modified version of android that is targeted for uh, flat uh, foldable devices and uh you know, big screen phones or big screen tablets. Um, So the whole point is, you know, they have a new sort of look to them. They can, it's much easier to multitask and move those apps around into different window sizes and everything. And there's like a little dock at the bottom, kind of like an iPad where you can sort of pull all those apps from there. Uh, And generally it's just gonna offer a more optimized experience for a lot of apps. Once, you know, a developer starts adopting those Android 12L guidelines. Uh, And so that's something that's happening and it's kind of weird because it's kind of like that honeycomb, uh, you know, Android tablet experience that came out several years ago. Uh, And this is the first time we saw a bit of a specific look at a tablet UI almost for large screen devices. Uh, But the funny thing is, I don't think this is necessarily something that stemmed because of tablets necessarily. It seems more like they're focused on foldable devices and foldable devices are pushing Google to come up with better ways on how the interface looks like on some of those larger screens, which might then benefit those larger screen tablets. So it's kind of a weird, backhanded way of helping tablets grow and and get better. But um, I, I just got a tablet recently that has the Android 12 L experience on it. I haven't tried it yet. But from what I've seen, it actually looks much better than the current state of Android on a tablet. Um, so, you know, again, more of that cautious optimism of uh, hopefully this will be you know, everywhere, and it'll look nice, and it'll actually be easier to use your Android tablet. And then maybe I'll spend eight hundred dollars on an Android tablet. But probably.
0: <laughs> I would not love the best to stuff. see it. I would really love to see this be a success because you know it would be nice, first of all, to have like real Android apps for tablets. And it's sort of a chicken and egg problem. But if we can get a really good on-screen user experience, then maybe people will be more apt to actually build for that experience. And also, it would just be nice to have an option other than the iPad. Now, I love my iPad. It's the only iOS device that I own. I guess it's actually technically an iPad OS device, but I can use it to, like, unlock my Apple TV or something if I have to restart my Apple TV, you know. Um, I love it. It's a great computer. But it would be nice to also have something that works a lot more like my phone, which is an Android phone. So, I can see I can see the bridge being there and it's just like I'm not quite ready to cross it. But one more thing we should mention is that um I think if people pre-order the Samsung tablet they get a keyboard case with it. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and this is another thing that I hate
0: about a lot of the tablets that often
2: come out, you know, they're like, "Oh, it's your new computer," uh, but you had to pay two hundred and fifty dollars for the keyboard, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> "Wait, so to really get the full potential, I need to spend an additional two fifty or one fifty or whatever it is." Um, so, yeah, for the Tab S eight family, they have different types of keyboards that come with it. I'm um, I, I not entirely sure on what the keyboards cost themselves. I think they're somewhere within the hundred to two hundred and fifty dollar range. But if you do pre order them, um, you get them bundled for free uh which honestly should be the default and and to samsung's credit they do bundle the s pen in with the tablet which is about the only manufacturer i think that keeps doing that Um, whereas you know with the ipad you have to buy the apple pencil which might be better sure but at least you get a stylus with these with this tablet Um, but yeah if you're if you're thinking about these tablets this is definitely the best time to buy them because you should not spend a whole separate 250 dollars on
0: a bluetooth keyboard Well, I'm certainly thinking about the tablets, that's for sure. Maybe not in the way that they want me to. That's okay. All right. Let's take another break. And then when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Julian, you are our guest. So you get to go first. What's your recommendation?
2: My recommendation is not something most people will probably ever use or want or care about.
0: That's like all of my recommendations. What are you talking about? (laughs) Every single week I come on here and I drop some stuff that four people care about. So I'm sure yours is gonna be awesome.
2: Okay, well, so uh, usually when I'm going to go, go do a video, Uh, I have to use my teleprompter, my tripod, I have a slider that slides the camera back and forth for this cool video effect. And I have a couple other things that I basically am constantly putting my camera on multiple little stands and gadgets and little things. It gets very annoying because I have to constantly unscrew the camera, screw it back onto this thing, screw it back onto the other thing, do that over multiple, multiple times. So Manfrotto came out with this little uh, quick release system. It's called a Manfrotto Move. It's about a hundred bucks, but basically you insert that little system into all of your little things that you might put your camera on. And now it becomes a very two second quick process of just doing a little release on the handle and your camera just pops out. So now I basically can move between all of these little things by just, in a quick hand motion, it takes two seconds, and it just has been very, very nice this past week when I've been filming like three videos, and I don't need to just spend like five minutes finding a way to screw something onto the tripod or something like that. So it's just very nice. Uh, you do need to buy multiple of them to really get a use out of them, obviously. So it's not like just $100 that you're going to spend, probably a couple of them. Um, but it is. If, if you're someone like me who's moving around and making a lot of videos on the go, it is definitely a lifesaver.
0: For the benefit of our listeners, I'll point out that Lauren was nodding in acknowledgement while you were talking about the, the pain of... Moving all of your equipment around during a video shoot?
1: <laughs> I was saying yes to the Manfrotto. <laughs> I would also say my recommendation this week is to watch Julian's videos because Julian has produced a few videos, including one on these new Samsung Galaxy S227EFPQR <laughs> phones. and um, And so if you want to see what they look like, i'd say go watch his videos my actual recommendation this week is euphoria oh the show the show or the feeling uh both (laughs) the show is on hbo max it stars zendaya hunter schaefer um let's see who was eric dane isn't i mean it's a great cast sydney sydney sweeney sydney sweeney yeah it's um uh, maude apatow there are others I'm I'm forgetting, but it's it's a really fantastic cast and an incredibly disturbing show um, about teenagers in suburbia. And they should call it Disturbia. It's really uh, disturbing. And Zendaya is the main character and also the narrator of each episode. And she suffers from drug addiction. And um, it's just, it's incredibly, it's compelling. Don't watch it with your kids around. Um... But, yeah, um, I'm deep into second season. Second already. season
0: just came out, right? Just came
1: out, and it comes out every Sunday. So th- that's a thing that HBO has done. I-, I don't know if I'd call it, like, a good thing, because I don't know if it's good, but HBO has successfully driven me back into the the habit of, like, got to wait for the next episode. Each week, as opposed to just binge watching all at once. Of course, you can do that. You can wait until all of the episodes are out and then just binge watch.
0: That is absolutely what I do.
1: But yeah, I, now I'm, you know, for the past few shows I've watched on HBO Max, I'm just like waiting every week for the new episode to come out. Yeah. Um, and that's how I feel about Euphoria right now. I so. think
0: the only shows that I don't watch them all at once are the ones where there's no continuity from episode to episode. So something like How To with John Wilson mm-hmm. or Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, the Johns. Um, I'll watch those like when they're new because they're fun to watch, you know, one at a time. But yeah, it just drives me nuts when I have to wait. I have to wait how many days? Yeah, six, seven. Come on, it's ridiculous. It's twenty twenty two. Put it all out at the same time.
1: Here, here. <laughs> you know they could bundle with an eight hundred dollar Android tablet. They could. They could bundle like early downloads like maybe then I would buy it <laughs> they were like you get access to all of your favorite series all at once if you just spent $800 on this Android tablet we've struck deals with all of the major media streaming apps I feel like all right all right now we're talking all right Mike what is your recommendation this week
0: uh true to my brand I'm gonna recommend something that maybe four people will care about but uh, it is the Caetano Veloso profile in The New Yorker uh, this tight thank you um, this is uh, the current issue of The New Yorker, which is the anniversary issue. It's the issue they put out every year that has the Eustace portrait on the cover. Uh, their, their mascot, the mascot of the magazine, our sister publication, um, fellow Condé Nast title of The New Yorker. Anyway, uh, they have profiled uh, Caetano Veloso, who is a giant of Brazilian music. He is a singer and a songwriter and a performer. He's been around for over 50 years. Uh, He is 79 years old and he is a superstar in Brazil. And he's a very political figure. He's a very divisive figure. A lot of people call him um, the Bob Dylan of Brazil. I like to think that he's more of like the John Lennon of Brazil because he has a beautiful singing voice. No shade at all to Bob Dylan. I'm just saying, Caetano Veloso has a better singing voice than Bob Dylan. But uh, lyrical content, political Activity, political content is all like operating at a very high level from the very beginning of his career, and it has shaped his career in a very interesting way, which is what this profile is about. It's about how the political situation in Brazil and the way that he was treated by all the different regimes and the dictatorships in the 70s uh, have shaped his career and have sort of put him into this arc of history that he otherwise would not have fallen into if he was from another part of the world or if he didn't participate in politics so uh it's really interesting really interesting profile and i would encourage you to read it and i would encourage you to listen to Caetano veloso's music because he still at 79 has one of the most beautiful singing voices on the planet
1: can i just read aloud a little excerpt from this profile
0: please just, do but only enough so that we don't get sued by the new yorker
1: okay all right david Rednick, please don't sue us <laughs> The Sambistas eased into some old standards with shuffling rhythms and choruses sung in shaggy unison. Mosquito, a trim singer in a t-shirt and sneakers, took a matchbook out of his pocket to add some sandy-sounding percussion. Linda, Linda, Veloso purred from his seat. Paula Levine, his wife and manager, sat next to him, rolling a joint. She describes the state of awe and ecstasy that her husband inspires as the Catano effect. People talk fitfully in his presence. They rush to mention their favorite of his albums, or they quote from songs that have become de facto Brazilian national anthems. It just sounds melodic. Yeah. It's, 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 it's great New Yorker writing.
0: That's Jonathan Blitzer writing for The New Yorker? Correct. Lovely stuff. Julian, I know you're excited to go listen to some Caetano, so we won't keep you any longer, but I, thank you for I joining will. us. I will go <laughs> listen to some, uh, but thank you. Uh, thank you for having me and thank you all for listening and thank you lauren for that lovely recitation
1: you're so welcome anytime you want me to do you know any kind of reading aloud um, <laughs> i can do the the entire wired podcast just reading a lot of our stories <laughs> the entrepreneurs stood on stage touting web 3 as a solution to all the world's <laughs> problems
0: <laughs> tell me more uh yeah we could sell that as an nft Uh, If you, our listeners, have any feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and we will be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom. Like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.